you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, the author of those words, watched his best friend die. Boy, that's a hard turn from a summer XP fun video, isn't it? Whew. Peter watched his friend, his best friend, be murdered. That does something to a person. And it wasn't just his best friend, Jesus, that died. It was his hope. His, his Messiah was the, the idea. And it wasn't even uh, something that happened like a, a stabbing in a back alley or a, a drive-by shooting in an empty lot. As horrible as those things are, this was on display for all people to see. Peter watched it happen. And, and later, even as he's thinking through this, in this letter called First Peter, he would remember Jesus going through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to his death, and he would quote Isaiah 53 about that. He would say that he, Jesus, committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. This murder was unjustified. It was heinous. It was a farce. And yet they took Jesus, and they laid him on a wooden crossbeam, and they put nails in his hands and his feet. They raised him up, and slowly he suffered. Slowly he died, and Peter watched it all. That does something to a person. I sometimes wonder if Peter suffered from what we would call survivor's guilt. You ever heard that phrase before? It's where you feel the stress of an experience that you go through with somebody else, but they didn't make it and you did make it. Sometimes it happens in a car crash or uh, in conflict or war, certainly things like that. Uh, Peter, you see, had, had betrayed his Savior. Three times he denied even knowing him within the course of a few hours. Three times had walked away from him in the midst of people yelling insults at Jesus and spitting at him and, and screaming at him. Peter folded under a little scrutiny. But not Jesus. When Peter wrote about this experience in 1 Peter 2, he says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I wonder if Peter wrote that with a lump in his throat because he didn't entrust himself to God who judges justly. When the heat turned up, he betrayed his friend and he watched him die. Something like that just kills something inside of you. You know, it changes you. It brings to a roar, I think, the whisper that all of us hear from time to time. It's a little whisper like this. I wonder if you've heard it. It goes, you're a nobody. You're a nobody. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at Peter's letter called First Peter in this series called To the Scattered Strangers of Springfield because in large part, we as followers of Jesus these days find ourselves as strange in this world or considered strange in this world. We're increasingly becoming the ones that people laugh at or mock or insult, you know, and, and sometimes those things can weigh on us in big ways and small because in large part, it feels like a lot of in our society are shouting to us as followers of Jesus, you're a nobody. Now, maybe they don't use those words, but, you know, they find out you go to church and they kind of roll their eyes or, you know, they say, oh, man, all Christians, they're just hypocrites, right? Or, 
um, or they, 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 they think that you're judgmental, or you must, you, know, you must be backward or something. But all of that just comes back to that one central phrase. What they're communicating a lot of times is, you're nobody. Do you hear that whisper in the wind? And the question is, is that who we really are? I mean, just, we're just a bunch of nobodies. Are we, as uh, so many people would put it, you know, you're just somebody who's failing to get on board with our shiny, progressive, liberated culture, you know? Are you the anchor holding this town back from an utter and true freedom, freedom to take whatever substances we like that make us feel good, freedom to eliminate uh, unwanted pregnancies or unwanted sick elderly people or uh, teenagers or kids who are running around on the streets without any parents around? Are you uh, the sick few who just won't accept where the world is heading? You're a nobody the whisper of some of our society. Your Savior died. God is dead. Grow up. Peter saw his friend murdered on a cross. And maybe like you right now, he got quiet. That was a little strange for Peter. I, I get the sense from reading his story that he's a bit of a talker. You know, he was the first one to kind of jump into conversations, like to rattle on, uh, like to be the first one to, to answer questions, things like that. Uh, maybe you know some people like that. I don't know. Sometimes their mouth works faster than their brain. You know anybody like that? Don't elbow anybody sitting next to you if you do, okay? I get the sense. And, and Peter here, it sounds like you know something's wrong when he gets quiet. And Jesus has passed away, and it's been some time, and he says, I'm going out to fish. That's it. Which makes sense, of course. I suppose his best friend had died. That was his old life before Jesus, as good a place to start over as any. He just going to disappear into the fabric of society. And as he does that, you know, maybe he got to thinking about, he just got caught up in this huge undertaking, right? I mean, for a few years now, he's been talking about kingdoms coming from heaven to earth and Messiah's ruling over the whole world and the last becoming first and, and grace being spread to all. And, and maybe Peter now at the death of Jesus is just thinking to himself, I got a little too big for my own britches. Jesus is dead. Peter slinks back into secrecy, and he gets silent. I'm going out to fish. Maybe he heard the whisper, you're a nobody, and he began to believe it. But Jesus wouldn't leave Peter with that thought ringing in his head. I love that. He showed up, Jesus, resurrected from the dead, shows up on a beach to talk to this Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine that? Jesus comes back from the dead, and he spends his time with Peter. I would not have done that, to be honest with you. If I come back from the dead after a few days, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to Pilate's house. I'm knocking on the door just to see him wet his pants. (laughs) Hey, remember me? You killed me a few days ago. Man, I'm throwing a party on that hill. They crucified me. I'm inviting the whole town. I'm going to say, hey, look at me. Look at this. Look what happened. But that's not what Jesus does. He goes early in the morning to this empty shore where Peter is out fishing in a boat. And he's fishing all night. And Peter's a, he's a failure. He's a, even a failure as a fisherman. It says all night long he didn't catch a single fish. Not a single fish. He's out fishing nothing. And then this guy shows up on the shore and he screams out to him, hey, friends, you got any fish? Oh, thanks a lot. You know, it's been a long week already. Really? You're rubbing it in? No. They shout back. They can't see who it is. 
And this guy on the shore, they can't tell. He says, well, then throw your net out on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some fish. Oh, gee, what kind of a joker is this? Really? Throw your net on the right side of the boat? We, you know, we dummies have been fishing on the left side of the boat all night. All the fish must have huddled over here on the right side. But for some reason, they do it. And they catch 153 large fish, so big they can't even pull the net back into the boat. It starts breaking up. they got to get it back to shore one way or another. And Peter hears John say, as he looks out to the shore, that joker is Jesus. That may not be a direct quote, but it's something like that. And so Peter jumps into the lake, and he swims across the lake, and he gets up onto that beach, and he sees Jesus, his best friend. And can you imagine the emotion that's just pumping through his body, you know? There's joy and there's shame. And there's, there's love and, there, and there's fear. You know, it's all just there. And, and he looks Jesus in the eye and Jesus looks him in the eye. And what's he going to say? What, what, what's, what's this moment going to be encapsulated? In? And, and, and Jesus looks his friend in the eye. And you know what he says? Let's eat. Man, I love that about Jesus. You know, raised from the dead and he's confronting his betrayer. And he's like, I've got time for breakfast. How about you? And they have a meal together. And in the midst of that meal, Jesus says this. Simon, son of John, speaking to Peter, do you love me more than these, more than these, these fish and fishermen and all this stuff? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, that's a strange call. Feed my lambs. Ultimately, it's a picture of you know, care for my followers. It's a pretty big job for nobody. And I wonder if you've ever had a kind of a strange call in your life where you felt called to do something or to get involved in something, but it was kind of a strange experience. I, I think of a story I've heard recently about a fellow named Marino who he was told that his childhood fishing hole, a place called um, El Cascajo, Peru, had grown so polluted from industrial waste that it had become a cesspool. They were, they were kind of closing down the lake, and it just broke his heart. And I don't know about you when you hear stuff like that, you know, how you respond, but um, I, I hear news headlines from time to time, you know, about how Americans eat, drink, or breathe in 70,000 microplastic particles throughout the year, you know plastic bottles and in the air and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how you feel about that. It just weirds me out. Or, or I hear about how this American makes this like uh, the, the deepest ever dive into the deepest part of the ocean, seven miles down into the Pacific Ocean. He goes into the Mariana Trench. And what does he find when he gets to the deepest part of the planet all the way to the bottom of the ocean? Did you hear? He found a plastic bag. I don't know. I hear stuff like that. I just feel guilty and helpless and gross. And Marino, he may have felt those things, but he also felt called. He used his um, environmental science education. He developed something called a micro nano bubbling system with biological filters. I don't even know what that means. But he used it to destroy the bacteria, to filter out metals, all the while retaining the aquatic life in that. And he did all this on his own dime. He paid for it himself, and it worked. And his home lake uh, went from uh, this on the left to that on the right. And now he set his sights on other lakes in Peru. I think about that, 
It's so strange, but so beautiful. And here you have a picture of Jesus on this beach speaking to Peter, and he looks him in the eye, and he calls him, and he says, feed my sheep. That's so strange. I wonder what was going through Peter's mind at that moment. A nobody, exiled on the lake, you know. Probably felt like he couldn't even go back to the temple. What would he say after this whole Jesus debacle for a few years? Yeah, I followed Jesus. I thought he was going to be his uh, Messiah, but then they killed him, and I thought they were going to kill me too. Uh, not a good career choice for me, honestly, but, but now Jesus is alive. And, and Peter, I, I think he dared believe that he could be more than a nobody, that he could live an impactful life, that he could change some things for others, that this calling of Jesus could change some things. After all, he would write in this letter of 1 Peter, now chapter 2, this to the scattered Christian friends around the Roman Empire. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Stay away from betraying your Savior, which war against your soul. Man, it is a war, and there are ways to fight back, but first you have to have the will. Do we have the will to fight society's sinful temptations? He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter came to hear in that strange call of Jesus that even though we don't fit maybe neatly in society around us as followers of Jesus, foreigners and exiles, he calls us, that doesn't lead to withdrawal. It doesn't mean to disappear into the fabric of society or to quiet our voices in silence. Instead, it means we take our standards of behavior, not from the culture around us, but from the culture of God's kingdom. Peter may say it this way to us today. He said, our lives should always fit the place we're headed to and not the place we temporarily find ourselves in now. That's tough. Man, those Christians in the early churches, after Jesus' resurrection and these churches start spreading around the Roman Empire, they were accused of some nasty, nasty things as people saw this develop. Uh, the Roman society began to say to, about Christians in their, uh, in their church gatherings, they said, well, they, those people, they, they're about murder and incest and cannibalism. That was some of the early marketing of the Christian church. <laughs> And you begin to understand this a little bit. You know, the, these Christians begin to call each other brother and sister in Jesus. You know, my brother and sister. And so they would even extend that to their spouses. So you would be out in society and the husband would call his wife sister. And they said, well, that sounds a lot like incest to me. Or they hear these Christians talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. And they say, well, that sounds a lot like murder and cannibalism to me. Strange. And ultimately... What they were communicating is you're a bunch of nobodies. Uh, one historian named Tacitus even claimed that the early Christians, he said, were hated because of their vices, because of their vices. Now, that slander was common in public conversations, but to combat that kind of slander, this is what Peter says, it's not to yell at the rumor mill, it's to live well. Walking away from sin, living good lives full of good deeds. And Jesus says the same to us, you know. He says in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And the question is, does our life together, does it shine? Do people see the good that we're doing in the world? Does that move them? Do your neighbors say of you, I wish all of my neighbors were exactly like you? And if not, why not? There's a movie called 
Bobby. Maybe some of you saw this. It's about the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968. And uh, some different characters in the movie, one played by Lawrence Fishburne as uh, an African-American chef, um, and his name is Edward Robinson. And at one point in the movie, there's this scene where he's having uh, a meal in the kitchen with a, a group of people, including uh, a Mexican waiter named Miguel. And Miguel is agitated. He is angry because there's so much racial tension in the world, in the United States. There's so much injustice and prejudice, and he's angry about all of this, r- rightfully so in a lot of ways. But at one point, he gets angry at Edward Robinson, and he can't understand why the chef is so laid back why he can allow this culture not to rile him up. And here's what the chef responds to him. He says, you know your problem, kid? You've got no poetry. You've got no light. You've got no one looking at you and saying, man, look at Miguel. I want some of what he got. And that's true of us in this cultural moment as well. In Springfield, Illinois, our culture looks at us And we are the people of God. We have a life of poetry. We have a life of light created to us by the gospel, given to us by the gospel. And so now, I wonder if we have this compelling shared life that makes others say, man, look at those Christians. I want what they got. Is that what they're saying? In the book Everyday Church, the authors say, the truly Christian way of winning a good reputation for the gospel is for the local church to begin thinking seriously about what practical good can be done in its local community. So how do we as a church, how do we thrive when we're sort of pushed sometimes to the margins of Springfield society? We do it, Peter says, by living good and attractive lives. How do we impact the people who despise us or who ridicule us? By living good and attractive lives. How do we answer the charges of critics and accusers? By shouting them down on Facebook. No by living good and attractive lives. How do we commend Jesus to our friends and family and neighbors and those who don't know Him? Say it with me, by living what? Good and attractive lives. I wonder if this was going through Peter's mind as he stood on that beach and looked in the eyes of Jesus. Or maybe on that beach, Peter thought about the upset Roman ranks. You know, Jesus, after all, had come back from the dead. Rome had put Him to death. So they were going to be a little bit ruffled by this, I assume. And so I wonder if he thought about how this strange call to feed the sheep of Jesus would relate to the government authorities, because after all, he would write in 1 Peter 2 this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right, for, listen to this language, it is God's will that by doing good you should silence The ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Man, listen to that language. Submission to and respect for people, even ignorant and foolish political people. Peter's language, not mine. Not that we have any of those around these days. This posture that Jesus calls us to is respect and submission. Because apparently, you can't feed his sheep if you despise his sheep and their shepherds. Oh, man, this gets convicting real quick. I'm going to ask the inappropriate question this morning. Have you made a nice little hobby of criticizing your leaders? 
Man, I get it. It is in the air we breathe, isn't it? It is an American pastime to criticize those people we lead. But I wonder, how often then do you take the opposite approach? Do you pray for and submit to and respect and show appreciation to those who lead you in the church, in your schools, in the community as aldermen or mayors or governors or presidents? Versus how often do we tear them down? Now, these are no light words because a shaken Peter watched his friend die at the hands of the Roman authorities. And yet this call of Jesus shook him up so that he says to us as Christians, you can't battle the slander that says to you, you're a nobody, if you're pointing to your leaders and saying that same phrase to them. Maybe that's what Peter had in mind as he was thinking through this call of Jesus. Maybe he got to thinking about the other nobodies of his culture, people who were kind of looked down on, weren't thought, thought much of. Maybe he wondered about how this strange call to feed his sheep would shake up the home. After all, in 1 Peter 2, he would say, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Listen to that. Submit to your masters, even the jerks. Boy, this is a strange call indeed. Or in chapter 3, he would say, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Submit to your husband in that culture, of course. There was no other option. Wives had to follow the religion of their husbands, period. That's the way it worked. What's really interesting is that Peter addresses wives in this letter. That was unheard of. To say to a woman in that culture who is married to a man, you, have a, you are an independent thinker. You can follow Jesus as a disciple, and you can even influence your husband's faith. That was revolutionary. It shook everything up. And, of course, Peter would also command those who were in control in the families of those days, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so nothing will hinder your prayers. Be considerate to your wives. Respect your wives. Not in that culture. The Dr. Phil of the first century was not telling husbands to do that. I can tell you this right now. This is strange. And maybe it was that kind of strangeness that fluttered through Peter's mind as he had breakfast with Jesus on that shore and he heard that call. And maybe those thoughts became the words he would write to these scattered, scared Christians all over the Roman Empire. But the thing he wants to communicate, I think, most loudly in chapter 2 as he's reading through this letter, as he's writing through it, to think of all these believers everywhere. I think the words he wants them to hear reverberated again and again are 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says to them, in, in essence, you are not nobodies. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You see what he's saying? You're not a nobody. God has called you out of darkness into light. You may have come in here this morning and you may be trying to slink into the shadows because of things that you have done during your week or in your life and you feel like a nobody. But Jesus lifts up your head this morning and I hope you hear through Peter, a nobody who felt that way once upon a time. I hope you hear this. Jesus saying to you, you are somebody to me. You are special You are my people. You have my mercy. And that call, that strange call, changes absolutely everything. Everything.
I'll never forget the call that changed everything for me. I was a 17-year-old freshman at Lincoln Christian University. I didn't know anything about anything, including girls. Man, there was a girl on campus there named Jody Jennings, and she was pretty awesome. And so in my male 17-year-old way of thinking, I thought, well, I want to ask her out on a date. And so what I did was I uh, picked up the phone. This is before cell phones, you know, and all the rest. And uh, I picked up the phone, called her room, and left a message on her answering machine. Now, if you're under 40, an answering machine is like voicemail. It's just in a different box. Because here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to invite her on a date. And here's what I thought a good idea would be. I'm going to invite her to a high school football game, my high school football team, Robinson High School, was playing Clinton in a playoff football game in November in the cold because what woman wouldn't want to do that? Uh, Not least to mention that was not actually her high school. Robinson wasn't her high school growing up. It was Oblong, which is actually uh, somebody who doesn't like Robinson High School very much. They're kind of rivals. And three weeks before, she had had scarlet fever. But it seemed like a good idea for me at the time to get her outside and watch a football game. And I left this message. And she called back. And she said, sure, let's go. And that call began a conversation that would change the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Peter hears this call from Jesus. He'd watched his best friend get murdered. It shattered him. He watched his best friend come back from the grave. It changed him. And now this friend is calling him to live differently in this world, and that compelled him. And I wonder, my guess is, if you listen closely, you can hear past those whispers that say to you, you're a nobody, to hear our Savior shouting this morning, you mean the world to me. And I think, I think if you listen closely to that, to that call, I think it'll change everything in your life. It'll change the way you go to work tomorrow and what you say and what you do. I think it'll change the way you talk about President Trump, Congress, government. I think it'll change the way uh, you react when people slander you or say evil things about you or roll their eyes at you. I think it'll change the way you treat your spouse this afternoon. I think, I think that this strange call of Jesus changes everything. What do you think? I tell you what. Don't tell me what you think. Just show me. Father, I'm so thankful for the beautiful experience of Peter with his Savior that reminds us, Jesus, that you're calling to us even today. And if we're tempted this morning, Father, to feel like nobody, to feel like there's nothing that we can impact, to feel like our lives are empty. I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, God, and remind us again of the impact we can have in somebody's life, that we can be a chosen people, that you've called us that and named us that. Give us that vision to do good, to silence ignorant talk of foolish people, to be your light, to be your poetry. In Jesus' name. Amen.